You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. All right, we're back with Experiencing Data again. And uh, this week, I have a representative from Google on the line. We have Dai Dang. Hi, Dai. Hey, Brian. What's happening? Uh, not much. Life, you know. You're in, uh, you're in London um, spreading some gospel about AI and user experience design. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm usually based in Seattle, but this week I am in London for the Pair Symposium. And that's the People Plus AI Research nice. Symposium, uh, where we bring together people from across policy, government, you know, the tech industry, social good, education, and such to discuss uh, the field of human-centered AI and what we what we can do to uh, ensure a you know more inclusive, accessible, ethical future that incorporates AI for all of us. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to digging in some details on this. Your, your title at Google is Emerging Tech Design Advocate. So what yes. does that mean you're a designer and you've kind of moved into like an advocacy role or could, could you explain that what that means to the, the non-Googlers? Yes, for sure. And even Googlers themselves. <laughs> there's not many of us, there's not many of us design advocates at Google. So it, I, it's a mouthful and it's a relatively niche role. But to your point, uh, precisely. So my background is as a UX designer and I work now in more of an advocacy capacity. So what that means exactly is that I am focused on working with the product community, working with product teams outside of Google to understand what are their challenges and pain points when it comes to emerging technologies. Like, so for instance, you know, what does it mean to create a usable, um, a usable, delightful mobile augmented reality experience, right? Or like, hey, what's this AI ML thing that people keep talking about? How can we make sure that we are, uh, that we are designing machine learning driven features uh, that are human centered, where our users understand how to utilize, utilize this feature and say like what its unique capabilities and constraints are. So essentially, my role as an emerging tech design advocate is to help um, help product teams, help designers overcome challenges when it comes to working with machine learning in this case. And is this largely within the walls of, of Google that you're doing this work or? No, no. So while so while I may be a, a Googler, my my audience, the people that I work with are all outside of Google or in terms of like the teams, mm -hmm. the teams and organizations that I work with are outside of Google because it's important for us mm -hmm. to. so. I'll take a step back. At Google, the team that I work with is called Pair, People Plus AI Research. And the Pair team was founded a couple years ago for really two key purposes. The first is to ensure that applications of machine learning are grounded in user needs, that you know we're not just doing machine learning for the sake of doing machine learning because it's the cool, sexy, hip thing to do, right? And the second key purpose behind the Pair team is to ensure that um, when we're, when we're uh, utilizing machine learning, that we're doing so in ways that are beneficial and inclusive for our end users. 
And so a part of that work means that even though I work with the pair team, it's important for us to understand, you know, what does an AI design and development process look like for teams outside of Google? You know, everyone ranging from, say, you know, an NGO working in India or an NGO based in India, right, to another large enterprise that, say, you know, is based in, um, in the UK. What are the challenges that they're running into when it comes to uh, machine learning literacy? Got it. Got it. So at a high level, like we talk a lot on this show about obviously, you know, my background's in human centered design and, and we're always talking about analytics and, and, um, and AI as well and, and decision support, right? Because a lot of these applications are about uh, predicting or prescribing information that hopefully is, comes in the form of decision support and helps you, helps you make a good choice. So from your perspective, if you could tell a data science or analytics leader one reason why design matters in the context of developing, you know, AI products or algorithms, specifically, let's, I would say, let's talk about machine learning. I know there's other tech, you know, technologies, but if there's one reason why design matters here, what would that be? Just, just one reason. I only have one reason. I can give. Well, like the most important thing, it's like, who cares? So it's kind of like, so, okay, so what? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not yeah. convinced. I'm a, I'm a leader, whatever. I, I have a, you know, my background's in analytics or stats, math. Maybe I'm not a tech company. Why do I need to care about this? Like, s- sell me on why this matters. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you asked that. I'm really glad that you, pos- that you posed that question to me because I'll be honest with you, even within Google, I can't tell you how many times I have tech leaders, engineers who kind of you know, cock an eyebrow at me and ask, well, so why, why would design be involved when it comes to working with machine learning, you know? And it, it's, a, it's an obstacle that I have to make sure that I clear in advance. And so when it comes to, if, you know, say if you're from a deep data scientist, ML, uh, machine learning engineering background, the key value proposition that design brings to you is we want to work with you to help make sure that when we're utilizing machine learning, that we're utilizing it to solve a problem, uh, solve a problem for a user in a way that couldn't be done through other technologies or like through heuristics or rules-based programming, right? That we're really, lo- that we're really using machine learning where it's best, uh, where it's most needed. That's one big thing to make sure there's an actual fit. Another is that we can help save time and money. We all know that working with machine, machine learning is a very time and cost intensive process, right? Everything from collecting and clean, collecting, labeling, cleaning the data to building and taking the time and energy to build and um, train the machine learning model. And the unique value prop of design is that we can help test out the proposed machine learning solution by faking it before you ever actually go about collecting any data or building any models. Um, and so I'll I'll give I'll give an example. Uh, there's a user research method, a user research and design method that we utilize at Google called TripTech. And what TripTech it's a it's a mixed me- methods user research and design process that allows us to test out a number of different hypothetical solutions, like hypothetical uh, features that we're thinking of working on for users, quickly validated with users in the form of. Um, in the form of user testing or in the form of user research to understand, okay, is this solving a real need? How urgent or priority of a problem is this? And then based on that, make sure that when we do start working more closely with our data scientists or our machine learning engineers, that their time and energy is being invested in a feature that's already proven out, that's already been validated to be impactful. And so how TripTech works is essentially you have, um, you kind of create 
Well, first you start off with a, with a, um, a lightweight survey, right? Uh, so say there's a problem, I'm actually gonna use, I'm gonna use a lot, I'm gonna use a mini case study from um, the Pixel 2 team uh, where they were working on the now playing feature that shipped on the Pixel 2 phone a couple years ago. And essentially what it is, what it does for the user is that in the lock screen state, the Pixel is able, you know, if there is music playing ambiently in the background, uh, the Pixel is able to tell you what song and artist that is without you actually doing anything on the lock screen itself. So that's the end, that, that was the end feature that ended up shipping, right? But walking back to like, how did this even come to be? How did design and research and machine learning, uh, you know, machine learning eng and data scientists come together to make this happen? Well, the team was brainstorming potential features to work on with Pixel 2. And so one of the problem statements that they landed on was, you know, us potentially, uh, you know, as a user, I want to know what song is playing without actually futzing with my phone, right? And this was like one potential problem statement of, I don't know, like other 15 or 20 other potential problem statements. So then based on that, they um, then sent out, they, uh, they brought users together and shared out that, pro that problem statement along other ones and asked them to fill out a quick lightweight survey uh, rating like how frequently they encountered this problem, like say, you know, on a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever basis, uh, as well as like how severe or urgent would you like this problem to be solved? And so that kind of quickly helps us uh, assess like how significant of a user benefit it would be if we could deliver on this, right? And then you move into the, um, the storyboard process where essentially you know, the design team will quickly mock up or like, kind of illustrate three panels. The first panel uh, represents the problem statement. So, you know, as a user, I want to be able to, you know, like, know what songs are playing in the background. Second panel is the proposed solution. Uh, so, you know, my pixel can automatically tell me what song is playing based on what's in my environment. And then the third panel is the impact, the potential impact for the user. So, you know, as a user, I can go about my day and, you know, know what's playing and not have to mess with it, right? So three panels, problem statement, proposed solution as well as potential impact. And then we take this and we show it to our users within this research setting to try to elicit some reactions. You know, not only again, like, you know, what do you think about this solution and how it fit into your day-to-day -day life, but also what concerns do you have? What questions do you have? Um, and so as you can probably imagine, like ones that often, you know, top concerns that we heard were like, so is this going to drain my battery life? Does this mean that Google's always listening to me, et cetera? And based on that, the team was able to work with, uh, work with engineer, uh, work with the engineers to then create a solution that, you know, the final solution, the now playing feature that included feature, uh, included settings for opting in and out of this for those who are more concerned about privacy, as well as like a little um, tooltip on the settings panel that actually talked a little bit about how this works, that this is on-device machine learning. So, you know, none of your information is sent up to the cloud, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so the reason why I talk about this is that, you know, the team didn't immediately start in on like, okay, you know, what's the training data that we need? And, um, you know, like we, we should actually start uh, building up models in order to have a functional prototype to test this. But we were able to test this hypothesis purely through low tech, no tech purposes, right? Purely through like a three panel storyboard uh, to make sure that when we were ready to work more closely with our data scientists or machine learning engineer, that we were in a good place to deliver on a solution that would actually be meaningful for users. Got it. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's 
fairly traditional in terms of like a you know the the standard design processes. Although, if I can take a guess and try to add to what you said, and and you clarify if, if I'm wrong here for our listeners, I think part so part of what you get out of that, if you're a you know if you're a business leader, you're coming at this from the data science or uh, you know analytics side of the fence, is that you don't you don't always know exactly how you need to deliver the machine learning in terms of the the format or the experience that needs to be had. And so part of like what this process did, it also, it, it sounds like it surfaced the need to discuss or provide an affordance mm-hmm. to learn about privacy uh, within that experience where there might be other times where like, you know, autocomplete, maybe, maybe we don't, we don't talk about how autocomplete works when you're typing, even though maybe that uses machine learning because through the process of doing this prototyping and getting validation, maybe you find out that users never brought it up. It doesn't matter. We don't need to spend time explaining how that works. And while that's a, perhaps a trivial, you know, minor piece of content there, it's the, it's the moving from the not knowing to the knowing that that's actually something that needs to be factored into a successful solution, which itself may have impacts on the technology choices that are used. You know, we talk about model trust a lot of the shows. So how much interpretability needs to be given to the customer in that particular context to trust the solution and decide that they're going to engage with it. Is that also what what use did I did I properly summarize that or did I just make that up? That was my perception. No, that was beautifully <laughs> articulated. So beautifully articulated. I wish I had said those exact things myself. <laughs> no, that was yeah, that was brilliant. And uh, as as I, I was as I was, the show is not sponsored by Google, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as I was listening to you reflect that back to me, it, um, a key piece that I hear again again from internal Google product teams as well as external product teams that I work with is that it's very, very easy to start. It's, it's very, very easy for a lot of teams to default to a tech first kind of mentality. It's like, oh, well, you know, machine learning is, you know, like, should we ML this, right? That's a very common problem that we oh, hear. And then machine learning becomes this hammer for which everything is a nail. It's a verb. Uh, but but <laughs> if only a hammer, yeah. you know, weren't as easy to construct as like, a, you know, a piece of wood and like, a, you know, a little metal anvil kind of bit, right? <laughs> like say if it took months to right. actually make that hammer instead. Uh, we, months to create that hammer instead. And so that's why sure. when we talk about like the value proposition of incorporating design into the machine learning, the machine learning process, it's starting first with the question of, okay, what are the user problems? that we want to solve? What are the user needs that we are seeing? And then the secondary question is how, you know, of all the, of all the technological tools in our toolkit, machine learning being one of them, how could, you know, how is machine learning uniquely positioned to solve this problem in a way that couldn't be solved through any other means? Mm-hmm. And then that's the foundation that we start from. So there's, it sounds like you're saying that you're, you're hearing a a tendency to want to use this tool where like we're, we're hunting for places to whack our machine learning hammer. Are, are you seeing this at Google as well? And I think, you know, that we talk about this kind of FOMO, I think that's there. And, and I think there's a valid promise that there's a real opportunity with AI. It's going to change businesses in a significant way. And, and there's something to that at the same time. Uh, it, it's like go buy, you know, go go purchase some data scientists, throw them in your team, and have them start whacking stuff. I, you know, and they're kind of like waiting for someone to hand them a, a good problem to work on, and the business doesn't know. They're just saying, "What is our machine learning strategy?" And so they're hunting for 
someone, someone in theory, hopefully is hunting mm -hmm. for a good problem to solve, right? So how does your design group like fit into that, uh, what I call the, you know, the problem discovery phase? And are, are you interacting with your machine learning and your data science counterparts during this such that they're hopefully getting some of this rubbed off uh, on them and they're able to change their thinking and their approach so it scales, you know, because there's only so many of, mm -hmm. you know, pair advocates, right, as you would call them at Google. How are they involved in that? Like, that was kind of a long rambling question, but I'm curious, like, are you guys all doing this together? And is there this kind of problem hunt phase that involves the technical people such that they can kind of frame their work uh, with that perspective? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's a great question. Like the what a, our key involvement in this is so as I had mentioned um, actually I don't know if I actually mentioned yet so the in my work with the pair team right like we launched the people plus AI guidebook earlier this year at Google I O and it's essentially an open source framework for helping product creators understand um, what's unique about design about making what's unique about making machine learning product decisions that's different from you know traditional say web a traditional um, non machine learning uh, product design. Uh, and so one of the key things that we talk about at Pair is like, we, you know, we kind of share out a set of exercises that you can do with your cross-functional team to come to that consensus. And so something that we really advocate for um, and implement anytime that like say, you know, we're facilitating design sprints inside as well as outside of Google is starting off with a simple uh, two by two exercise, right? So you have a two by two, uh, so four quadrants, and the left axis, um, the Y, sorry, left axis, the Y axis is say um, user impact or user benefit, and then the X axis is how critical or uh, or how critical or dependent is uh, machine learning in this, you know, for the solution. And then when we kick off a design sprint or when we kick off uh, brainstorming ideation, essentially, around the next set of features that we want to work on, we bring together the entire cross-functional team. So not just your product manager, your data scientist, your machine learning engineer, your tech lead, uh, your UX designer, UX writer, user researcher, you know, bringing in, bringing, bringing together all the key disciplines. Uh, and then we start, and then, you know, we'll have time to essentially brainstorm, right, on individual post-it notes. Like, what are potential solutions or features that we think could solve a need? And so everyone documents that. And then after that kind of individual ideation session, starts mapping it out on this two-by-two, two, right? And so the because you have the entire team coming together, the user researchers and the user, uh, the, um, yeah, the user researchers and the UX designers have a keen sense of what the current, what the user's current journey is, and so where these different solutions could fit in, as well as like what their top pain points are, and so what is really impactful of a problem to solve for users, right? And then on the other hand, you have the data scientists, you have your tech leader, machine learning engineers in the room, and they're able to help vet and validate how critical is machine learning to solving this problem, or can it be done through another means? And when you have everyone in the room like that, ideating, having conversations about the trade-offs, ideally you want to move forward, you want to converge on everything that's in the upper right-hand quadrant. Essentially, you know, the ideas, the features that could be most impactful, most beneficial for your users, as well as the ones that are actually dependent, that really critically need machine learning in order for that solution to get off the ground, right? And it's through that kind of foundational phase that you get that buy-in from data science, you know, from the tech side of the house as well to move forward. Uh, thanks for breaking that down. The the next question I'm having, so I'm taking this perspective in my head that, you know, I, I come, a lot of my work has come 
through tech companies. You know, that's that's kind of the ranks that I came up through. Yeah, same here. Yeah. And so a lot of the the verbiage we're talking about here, user research, product mm-hmm. management, some of these roles don't exist uh, in places, or at least uh, when you when we say product management, we're probably thinking about a digital software product or application, like a, a commercial, you know, something like that. So what if we're talking about like small motors for like, I make the motors that go in lawnmowers. Okay, so we don't. When we talk about product management at at our company, I have like the guy that works on you know the lawnmower size motors, and then we go all the way up to like large industrial scale motors, and so that's my quote product. And maybe there's some application of machine learning here, which perhaps doesn't have a heavy user facing component to it, but I'm interested in this concept of like making machine learning work for my business. I don't want to just throw the technology at the wall. I, I'm at least aware that we should be using machine learning in the service of some customer experience or problem. So who should I send? My question is, who should I send? Like if I was to send one person and off and, and go look at this stuff that Dai talked about, that talked about on this podcast and they have some guide or something, well, who would I send from my business uh, to go do that? Who's the next best role if we don't have a UX lead uh, we don't even have ux like it just doesn't exist like what what would it be a bis that frontline business sponsor should it be the data scientist like who would you who would you suggest takes that first step i'd say it's the person who has uh the the most combination of authority as well as investment in the user in the end user facing considerations right and so across with I'm thinking now of like the teams that I work with outside of Google. That's that's been that's ranged from roles like research scientists who you know have that keen interest in like how does this actually impact people at the end of the day, to product leads, product managers, essentially like kind of like the mini CEO, so to speak, of like this lawn mowing, uh, this lawn mower uh, type of um, product that you know this example that you gave, uh, to even um, you know some yeah like I I've even had like other data side like other data scientists reached out to me in the past who didn't have a background in user experience design or research, but who were keenly interested in applying you know, human-centered um, AI design processes. So that the, the thing about the guys, I know, um, and I'm glad that you pointed that out, because I do try to be cognizant of like this context that I came up in around within the tech industry. Even if you don't have a trained background as, or even if your role doesn't have user experience designer or user research in it, it doesn't, the, the People Plus AI guidebook is meant to help you break, it's meant to help break down those silos and those barriers across these different titles and roles, right? So it's written in a very plain spoken way so that data scientists, engineers, tech leads can pick it up with a sense of like, hey, what are some actionable pointers in terms of like, oh, you know, the kind of questions that I might want to ask my user to make sure that we're solving the right problem for them. Or, you know, um, like, uh, you know, what are some things that I can think about when it comes to confidence intervals and what it means for my users, right? It's, it's, because, <laughs> and this, you know, this is kind of a, a larger discussion within the design field. Uh, regardless, we're all making design decisions and some of us may have more training or experience in making those design decisions than others, but it definitely doesn't mean that there isn't an abundance of tools and resources out there to help us make as well qualified design decisions as possible. 
Sure, and I'm glad you said that. And just to, to clarify what she's talking about, we may I don't think we've said it, but there's <clears throat> Google has, has uh, produced largely with your leadership, from what I understand, that the People Plus AI guidebook, and it's pair.withgoogle.com, and I'll put the link uh, into the show notes here. So you're referring to that. And, and one thing I, I really did like about the guide when I went through it, and it's something I talk about on the show as well, is it's not so much about job roles as, as it is about encouraging certain behaviors and activities. You figure out who goes and does them, yes. but it, it's really centered around the activities that need to happen in order to get these types of kind of human-centered outcomes, if that's your goal. So I, I really did like that. And, and it's not it's not technical. It's something that any frontline business manager could understand. And, and to me, it's kind of a question of whether or not you want to move fast, you know, whether you bring a, a designer in who's done this and who's familiar with all this kind of stuff uh, to move fast and be efficient versus kind of learning this process on the job and, and learning how to keep your technology cravings at check or I would, you know, speed, right? Everyone's trying to move fast all the time and, and ship code. And a lot of times we focus on the, sh the shipping of code and the putting of production uh, models into production as our measurement, as opposed to the outcomes that come from putting something into production. So I think, I think it's a nice check on um, how are we going to evaluate the, the success criteria? Uh, what do we need to be thinking about uh, that may not be obvious, that has nothing to do with mm -hmm. code? Uh, or model training or any of that. Well, it does have to do with model training a bit because we, you, you guys actually, uh, this is going to dovetail into my next question in a second, but I think you guys did a good job putting that together in a way that's kind of role independent. Yeah, and uh, seizing on that, um, I really like the way that you set up the the benefits and the goals of the People Plus AI guidebook, right? It's really encouraging to hear because that's, that's that was one of our goals with this resource to begin with is to um, make, is to uh, make, practicing human-centered AI design as accessible as possible for anyone who's incorporating machine learning uh, into their service, into their product, into their feature, what have you, right? And I'll, I'll also take a moment here to further unpack what I mean when I say human-centered AI, because I know that can, that can also sound very buzzy or like, you know, kind of like ideological in a way. It's like, oh, I'm not sure what, what, what's the substance there. And so when I say human-centered AI, what I mean is that, you know, with with all the hype and craze around AIML um, as of late, it dovetailed with kind of larger misconceptions or misunderstanding around what, what do we mean when we say AI machine learning? How can it help us? Uh, what can it do for us, right? There's a lot of misunderstanding and even uh, concern out there amongst the general public. And so when we, may, when we say human, practicing human-centered AI design, we mean, you know, as people, uh, as product creators, service creators, how can we make sure that we are making decisions about our product and service so that our users feel in control of the technology and not the other way around? Because that's, um, you know, that's a, that's a large risk that we want to make sure that we're especially mindful of when it comes to this technology. I, it's funny you you brought up kind of the hype. So I, this really ties into something nice. So I'm so I'm getting ready to run uh, my first uh, training seminar in January called uh, yeah. Designing Human Centered Data Science Solutions. And so as part of my own research and dogfooding this, I'm talking to people that come from the data science and analytics background to get feedback. And so 
I love that you talked about kind of the, the jargony sound of like human-centered AI. And so here's some feedback from, from Mike. And I don't know if he's listening to this show, but, but Brian, regarding the title of your page, I don't like the title of the seminar. Human-centered isn't a benefit to me. It sounds like I'm going to get a sermon on some design religion. Now, I see it's part of your core brand, but that doesn't make it meaningful to me, your audience, I presume. I thought that was really interesting. And apparently there's still some buzz there. Like how, how would you respond to someone like Mike if, if you heard that? Uh, quite honestly, I love that Mike said that. Uh, <laughs> I, I really appreciate it when people are just straight up candid. Oh, he gave me the stuff. best feedback ever. Yeah, like great. it was a wonderful email. I loved it. Like, please like give me dump it yeah keep know? it coming like keep it coming uh you, you know I, I think my twitter my email whatever like feel free to reach out to me too i want to hear i want to hear all right. the honest shit i mean it uh, so, right, right right yes uh, absolutely and so when i when i'm talking about the people plus ai guidebook or even the practice of human-centered ai design how i the 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 framing and even the vocabulary that i use varies whether i'm talking to a ux product um manager audience or if it's or or the audience skews more engineer, more machine learning engineer, or data science, or data science, right? And so I'll be honest that when I'm talking to UX and PM folks, I'd say human-centered AI because they're already bought into the human-centered design process. I mean, that's like an actual thing that you could Google and like learn, you know, probably you know, deep dive into, right? But when it comes to data scientists and machine learning engineers, I'll be honest, I get a lot of skepticism around like some of the more fuzzy qualitative design thinking processes where they're not quite sure like okay so what does this actually get us like what's this you know um what does this drive at right uh or is it just kind of empty ideation and so when i'm talking about the people plus ai guidebook and human-centered ai i'll actually refer to it as you know essentially what it is is like it's it's a resource for helping you it's a resource of best practices uh, best practices for ai product decisions right because regardless of what role you play, if you are incorporating machine learning in some meaningful way into an end customer experience, there's going to be decisions you need to make around, say, like, you know, how do you onboard your user? How do you onboard your customer to using this machine learning powered agent, for instance? Or how do you help set their expectations so they're not disappointed if, you know, the, uh, if the agent or the system doesn't respond with the kind of output that they're looking for? Um, how do you ensure that they don't overtrust your machine learning system or the agent? Uh, that you know they know when to override it with their own intelligence, right? Uh, I mean, there's so many. Like, at the end of it, if you're using machine learning to help, like, to help solve some business goal for you, chances are those business goals are going to be connected to some customers or to some users. And so, how your users, your customers, interface with whatever machine learning solution you have is um is a huge consideration that goes beyond like that like that's that that's the that's the harder um i guess less squishy kind of like people interest sounding side of human-centered ai right it's like really a human-centered on one hand you, you can call it human-centered ai but this uh, the same the same um face of it is essentially how do you make decisions that set up your service for success mm -hmm. and again for our audience here when when she talks about customers i think we sometimes have to change you know that language can be solution instead of product mm -hmm. if we're talking internal and the customer here may be your internal business sponsor so this is if you're working in a bank and you know like you're doing a like we're trying to predict uh give a loan don't give a loan 
you know, using machine learning and you're providing decision support here, these the types of uh, checks uh, that the design process can put on on measuring whether or not the machine learning outcomes are actually helping the loan officer make a loan approval decision or not. You, I think you can start to hear from the way you explained it how this ties in. The, this is very customer focused in the sense of customer being this internal employee who's going to use this. It doesn't really matter. The, the point is they're human. They're, even bankers are humans. <laughs> so you, even the bank employees you know, count as a customer. And if they choose to ignore the solution because it's either maybe it's not transparent enough and how it works or it's uh, it's too prescriptive whatever it may be that would be your measurement or your check uh, and and that's both a qualitative and quantitative check right you can probably somehow measure whether or not the uh, recommendation is accepted or not accepted but there's also the qualitative part where you get that kind of verbal feedback or you do some kind of usability testing and you kind of get those reactions to, to this you know, loan officer who's supposed to be using this tool and why they may be ignoring it or what makes them not trust it and this kind of thing. So that's really the benefit. And then ultimately, if you have that business responsibility, right, then, then that's where butts are on the line, right? Because if you spent you know, $25 million, six months building some giant you know, thing that's supposed to help you predict, give a loan, don't give a loan. And the loan officers are still using their old recipe to do everything because maybe they got burned or they saw some really suspicious, you know, recommendation that they didn't trust. And they kind of just put it aside as this thing isn't ready yet. That's where you have to decide, well, was it worth $25 million? And someone eventually is going to ask a question like, what did we get for this $25 million that we spent? Why are people not using this? Like, we're not seeing an income change. We're not seeing loan approval rates going up, or you know, whatever that metric is that we want to measure against. So, I think it's important to remember that you know, customer here can mean internal uh, business sponsor as well for the non-tech folks out there. Yes, and I think that's. Um, I'm really glad that you drove that point home because when it, you know, I mentioned I mentioned up front that um, a lot of my work is helping teams outside of Google overcome challenges in working in working with machine learning, right? Or like in designing with machine learning. Uh, and the mm -hmm. for um, a lot of folks, maybe less so for your users who already have like a data science, a deep data science background, but for a lot of the teams that I work with, they're still, you know, they're very, they're keenly interested in what this quote unquote, you know, this new world of machine learning entails, but they're just trying to wrap their mind around that vocabulary even, right? Um, and like, what are what are the capabilities and mm -hmm. strengths of machine learning, for instance? Uh, and so there's there's a lot of a lot of teams, a lot of folks are still creating, are still evolving their own mental model around what machine learning is and what it's good for. But closely and in relation, this is something that I feel like people don't talk as much don't talk as much about, maybe because it's less sexy to talk about the machine learning. Is that there are oftentimes a lot of organizational or political or like cultural um, uncertainties or confusion around even integrating machine learning, so to speak, right? So, you know, like it kind of to your point, like, you know, for this $25 million investment, like, what am I going to get from it? Or, you know, how does this improve, uh, you know, from the baseline? Or, you know, like if, uh, like if I'm working in an organization that may be more risk averse, um, how, what, you know, how, why would I take a bet on machine learning? Or, um, yeah, like the, the the solution itself 
it's it's never it's never gonna it's never gonna stand alone in a silo, right? But like your tellers are gonna interact with it. Like you know your um your bank customers are gonna interact with it. Um, you have bank managers who are gonna have some kind of um in, uh, have have some kind of touch point with it. There are a lot of other people involved in this system around whatever machine learning solution it is that you happen to implement. And so we need to have an understanding of what their concerns and their challenges are before we ever start working on the solution to begin with, because uh, then otherwise it just falls flat on its face. Yeah, yeah. One one thing we even said other people. One thing I, I liked in the guidebook was, you know, there was even there was even talk about designing the rater experience. So if you're labeling data, yeah. you're mm-hmm. when we talk about human centered, right? Where you might even be talking, you know, ethically about the people who aren't even in the room. So mm-hmm. this is partly where designers can help you think about what's not really obviously present there, because we're always thinking about that experience experience piece, right? And also, but also how does this going to create business value? And sometimes those things are at odds with each other, but that's to me part of, that's the difference between the good and the the great designer, right? Is that ability to kind of merge the business objectives with uh, ethically sound and user facing and user centered principles. It's both of those. And it's, it's partly why I don't like UX as much because I feel like UX is always talking about one half in a commercial setting, at least, you're talking about one half of the story, and there's really two pieces that need to come together uh, in order for most of these solutions to be viable. You know, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So, the uh, I, we're getting close to our time here. I I wanted to go one nerdier level down on on something here, just for some of our more technical audience that might be listening here. But I was curious after I I read the guidebook, and and is there like a different uh, approach or considerations that need to be given uh, when you when you pair up, you know, human centered design and and machine learning based on the type of technical model that's being used. So, it's mm-hmm. a decision tree, or it's a you know a, a random forest, or whatever that model is that needs to be used. I you know I, I I'm guessing there's times where that model there's a strong preference to use a model for a technical reason or it's almost like you pretty you pretty much know you're going to need to use that does it change what activities the design group will go through in order to get that right or are they pretty independent Ooh, so for that okay, I'll I will be honest and tell you upfront right now that I could not tell you the nitty gritty differences between like say a random forest algorithm and you know a convolutional neural network or whatever else right in terms of like the kinds of models I could not I, I, I wouldn't be able to speak to the technical details under the hood of it but what I can and I, I say this it's something that I continue to try to learn because you know, the more I understand the more easy, the easier it will be for me to work with my own machine learning engineers mm-hmm. right but for for folks at large who are utilizing the people plus AI guidebook um, or who are thinking about the end user facing considerations of machine learning, you know, if you're not the one who's directly working on like collecting uh, and cleaning the data, for instance, or if you're not the one who's directly working on the model itself, you still have, you, you still are empowered to make sure that you are making decisions, product decisions, business decisions that are still in the best interest of your end users. And so I'd say, for mm-hmm. for folks like myself who come from more of a you a user experience or a you know a product background, it's helpful for us to understand the nitty gritty of models, but it's not necessary because what where you know what we have the most stake in is to make sure that we understand 
how utilizing machine learning um, impacts the end user experience. And that's something that stands independent of the actual model itself. Yeah, and so my, my question wasn't so much the difference between the models, but whether or not the design activities we do change because of a technical model choice. So oh. you know, a neural network versus a, a random forest, does that, oh, use, it's neural network, and, and for some reason we know it's going to have to use this technology, so therefore we're going to do three times more of sugar and two parts less flour in our design recipe that we go through because of that technology choice. That was mm, more the, the question. No, no, Sorry. I understand. <laughs> not, mm, not in my experience, no. That's all right. No, I was just, just curious. Cool. This is, uh, I mean, you've, you, you've dumped a ton of great stuff on, on our listeners here. It's been really fun to, to talk about this. So I'm curious, do you have any uh, again, thinking about kind of, you know, our audience, uh, you know, data science leaders and analytics leaders that may be coming at this from that, you know, technical math stats perspective, any final takeaways that you would, you would give to them about either putting this into play or getting past the feeling that that sounds like it takes a lot of time and it's going to slow stuff down. I can almost guarantee there's probably people thinking about that. Sounds really nice. Who has time for that? How would you send them away from this episode? Yeah, well, I'd say you can either save time now or you can either save time uh, at the upfront or you can you could potentially lose time on coming out the other end, right? What if you, you know, what if you spend all that time <laughs> investing in machine learning and you find out actually, you know, uh, it's not uh, that the, the output that it's generating isn't useful for our users or they don't trust it or they have other qualms and considerations over the fact that machine learning is even at play at all. I mean, that would be a real pity to find that out at the end of, you know, nine months and all this time, all this um, funding as well that you invested in the effort, right? Versus validating very early on and having the confidence that you are on the right path to solving the right problem. Sure. I I would 100% second that. I, I think it, you've got, you just built your technical debt up. You have a team now that spent you know, however many months building the wrong stuff that nobody wants to use, your trust, your, the perception of your, the quality of your work and the value that you're providing is hopefully absent. And maybe in some places, no one's even paying attention because there's a lot of money being thrown at this space and not a lot of accountability, it seems a lot of the time. But it's so much more fun to work on stuff that people want to use, and my, at least as a maker. And, and I tend to think of data scientists as problem solvers and and makers. So they're in the family of designers and it doesn't really matter whether we call them designers or not because it's really about the activities and and behaviors that we go through and I don't know that's there's even just a fun and job job satisfaction level thing too where you start small, you try to make small uh, improvements and and monitor them over time and it just to me it builds up so much more rapport with the teams and it's just a much it's a longer term instead of thinking about each project level, right? It's about a team that's starting to look, being looked at as strategic, you know? Yeah. Cool. Um, where can people find out more? I know uh, uh, we've, we said the pair.withgoogle.com has the guidebook on it and I'll put that in the notes. Uh, if someone wanted to just kind of follow your ramblings, do you ramble on the Twitters or the LinkedIn's or where, where are you? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle 
is uh, at B-Q-P-D-A-N-G. And Brian, I can also make sure I send that to you. Yes. Um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. You know, feel free to reach out and send me a message. I don't check LinkedIn as, as often as I should, but my inbox is open as well on Twitter. So feel free to reach out anytime with feedback, questions, concerns, uh, honest, candid feedback. Mike, if you're listening out there, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm game for all of it because you know, this, the, the People Plus AI guidebook, is, it's a starting point. It's a living document. You know, when it comes to yep. uh, software applications of machine learning, we have, it's a relatively nascent space. Mm -hmm. and we have a lot to learn from in terms of designing for it, right? And so the People Plus AI guidebook is a starting point. And we want to understand what works, what doesn't, what's missing, so that we can continue to build the set of best practices around AI product decisions mm -hmm. together. Great. I, I love it. And uh, uh, thanks for, for putting this out and, and sharing all this good stuff with us. This has been a great episode. Thank you for having me, Brian. Yeah, cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.